Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hi and welcome. It's Robin Openshaw and I'm so excited to introduce you to one of my all-time heroes who has really impacted my life for the better and whether my children know it or not has made a big impact on how we eat and how we walk on the earth. John Robbins is the author of several bestsellers including Diet for a New America and The Food Revolution. He's a director of quite a few nonprofit organizations related to the environment, health, world hunger, genetic engineering, and the welfare of animals and all species. He runs with his son, Ocean, the very popular summit, The Food Revolution. And I want you to hear from John himself, the amazing story of how he walked away from the Baskin Robbins empire. So John, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I cannot wait to have you say this yourself as a longtime John Robbins fan. You've so influenced my life. I know the story of your family, but for the sake of my readers, this is just something you're never going to forget when you hear John Robbins tell us the story of his family and tell us why you said no to taking over the family business and why you chose a really different career. Well, you know, I I became a parent in my life and a grandparent and um, that when we're parents, we we often have ideas. And if our our vision for what we think would be best for our our youngsters is is coherent with their soul's purpose for, for being alive, contract with life, then we can be in alignment with them and we can work. It's it's usually there's a compatibility. Um, But sometimes there's not that compatibility. Sometimes the parent has an idea and a vision and that's not what they're here for. And then you have a, a more challenging situation. And in my childhood, it was more of the latter than the former. Um, my dad, uh, as, as most people know now, um, founded Baskin Robbins. He was the owner of it. He, he, my uncle Bert Baskin joined him a couple of years later, and then the two of them owned it and ran it. And my father had two daughters and a son. I'm his only son, and he was of the belief system that women shouldn't work. He, he was that's his old-fashioned patriarchal thinking that women should be taken care of by their husbands and owned by them and controlled by them, really. I mean, it's really old-fashioned, but that's where he was. And so all of the weight of his expectations for the business were on me. And he groomed me to succeed him. And it started really young. When I was five years old, literally, I was sweeping the floor in in his office, emptying the wastebaskets, and then gradually learning the business from the inside out. And I invented flavors, and I loved ice cream, and I ate a ton of it. And I swam in an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in our backyard, and the company was immensely successful in financial terms. And I was the heir apparent. I was being groomed to to take over, um, and I actually loved it. Um, I loved ice cream. I loved inventing flavors. One of my favorite flavors that I I had a, a major hand in inventing was Jamocha almond fudge. Some of our some of the people listening probably know that flavor. It was very successful flavor, and you know it was a kid's dream in some respects unlimited amounts of ice cream. I sometimes ate ice cream for breakfast. Um, but, 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 there's a lot of buts. Um, and one of them is that when my uncle, Bert Baskin, was 54, he died of a heart attack. And he was a very big man. He ate a lot of ice cream. He was very big. And when he died, I asked my dad, do you think there could be a connection between the amount of ice cream he would eat and his fatal heart attack? And my father kind of glowered at me and said, no, no connection. His ticker just got tired and stopped working. 
And then there was a, an expression on his face. There was a way he was looking at me that basically communicated, don't you ever ask that question again. You know, John Bradshaw, the famous psychologist, used to talk about there being no talk rules in, in families, subjects that just could not, cannot be mentioned because they are so um, challenging in some way of the, the, the structure of the family. Well, in my family of origin, to, to bring up the possibility that ice cream might be connected to heart disease, in fact, that food might be connected to health, was taboo. And so I couldn't talk about it with my dad, but I began to think I needed to look into this and think about it seriously. And while I was doing that, there was another thing that happened. I was with my dad. We went to one of the really large dairies in the Central Valley of California. I grew up in Southern California. Bascaramas was headquartered in, in Southern California. And we, we got a lot of our, our dairy products from huge dairies in the Central Valley. And one day, my dad and I went to one of those dairies for some business reason. And it was the first time I'd ever been to one of them, actually. And on the walls in those days, uh, behind the counters in all the Baskin-Robbins stores, there were these photographs, sepia-toned, beautiful pictures of Guernsey and Holstein, mostly Guernsey uh, dairy cows, grazing in beautiful pasture land. It turns out those photographs were taken in Wisconsin. But the image was, was conveyed by those photos to all the customers who came into the stores that the ice cream was made from milk from cows who grazed in beautiful meadows. And I sort of had believed that because I hadn't seen anything to oppose it or heard anything to oppose it. And then this day, this was my first time ever going to the actual dairy and it was horrible. The, the, the cows were, it was a feedlot. There was not a blade of grass in sight. There were thousands and thousands of cows um, and I went up to one, I was at the time a teenager and I went up to one of them, one of the cows and she flinched, she winced, she was frightened of me, even though I meant her no harm. And it, it occurred to me, what has happened to this cow? What has she had to endure at the hands of human beings that a, a young boy approaching her with an open heart frightens her? And I looked around and the conditions were just so um, unnatural and so restrictive of movement for the cows and just so different from what the things that had been on the, the, the photos in the stores, that that was a wake up call for me. So that's two, my uncle's death and that. And then the third was we were, I was working in the advertising department that year. And, and we came out with, I should say, we, the company came out with a slogan that was at the, the basis for the advertising that year. And it was, we make people happy. And that was using all the radio jingles and all the ads and on, on TV and billboards, everything. And I didn't like it. And I told my dad, you know, we don't make people happy. We sell ice cream. It provides momentary pleasure. But human happiness, I said, is just too challenging and real a human problem issue to trivialize like that, to commercialize like we don't, it's not something you can sell. You know, it's not something you can buy. It's a product of how we treat ourselves and each other, how we live. And he stopped me and he said, it's an advertising slogan, John. Its purpose is to sell ice cream. And I said, well, that's what we do. We sell ice cream. We don't make people happy. And he said, stop being a philosopher. And I realized we really weren't on the same page. And I had known that anyway, but this moment crystallized it for me. And at a certain point, I told him I wasn't going to follow in his footsteps. I didn't want to do this with my life um, for a bunch of reasons. I didn't know then that I would one day write books and, and, and so forth. I didn't know what my life would, would become. But I did know this, in order to be in, in integrity, in integrity with my choice to not um, do what he wanted, I needed to walk away not just from working there, but also from the money. 
So I told him I didn't want a trust fund. I didn't want any access to his money, his fortune, which was by then considerable. It was a billion dollar company. Um, but I didn't want to, if I'm not going to do what he wants, if I'm not going to be part of the ice cream company, I don't think I should live off its income. I should find my own way in life. And I did. And he then decided I was crazy. I, you know, he'd worked really hard his whole life. He was a hardworking guy, many, many hours. And, and he did, achieved a level of financial success, frankly, that most people could only dream about. And he's offering it to his only son. And he probably thought he got the only kid in the country that would say no to that. I mean, it wasn't like we were manufacturing plutonium triggers for nuclear weapons. It was ice cream and, and whether it made people happy, it did in the short term make people happy. It did provide a lot of pleasure for people. And I just felt it wasn't my path. I just felt I didn't want to be part of selling a product that might undermine people's health. And I didn't think an ice cream cone would hurt anybody or kill anybody, but if you're in the business, you want people to eat as much as possible. You want them to buy as much as possible. That is the business model. And the more people eat, the more likely they are to have a heart attack like killed my uncle. The more likely they are to be obese, the more likely they are to have diabetes, which my father developed, very serious form of diabetes and almost killed him. So that's kind of why I said no. I didn't know yet what I was saying yes to. At that time, I only knew this wasn't for me. And, and it was painful with my dad. He, he wanted me so much to follow in his footsteps. I was his only son I, and in his patriarchal thinking. So that's how it went. And, 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 and it was painful between us, un, un, uh, sadly to say. But over time, in, as the years unfolded, as the decades unfolded, we did have a rapprochement. He, he did become actually proud of me for what I actually did. And, and in fact, my work ended up saving his life and giving him about 20 more healthy years than he would have had otherwise. And that, that was the kind of um, uh, joy that I had for, for that. And I was also able to tell him that I loved him even though I was not living off his money. And that was very important too. You know, so many things about your story are interesting and they go far beyond the divide between you and your father when it came to food. Because, of course, you know, you started life swimming in the ice cream cone shaped swimming pool and eating ice cream for breakfast. But slowly over time, it sounds like there was just dissonant energies between your dad's career, which was your chosen career. You were the heir apparent and what he wanted for you. And I just have a lot of compassion for both him wanting you to be proud of him. I mean, we want our children to be proud of us as much as we want our parents to be proud of us. And um, I'm so glad there was a rapprochement because you were so instrumental in helping him when he was diagnosed with advanced diabetes to to turn that around and not have the outcome that that your uncle had. And so I, I really just want to say that I think you're a great American hero and not just because you turned down the opportunity to run a billion dollar company that is an American icon that you could have easily just bought into it and believed that it was creating happiness. You know, if you just sort of blunt some of your some of what your heart and soul are telling you, you could probably go along with that. You know, like you said, you weren't making nukes to send to kill babies in China, you were making ice cream. And so good for you for being such a thinker. But it must have been really scary to have it dawn on your dad over time that ice cream was related to health and to poor health. And so thank you for your work, because you didn't just you weren't just instrumental in saving your own father. But I just want you to know that the reason I asked you to do this call with me today is that I was an obese, very sick person. 21 different uh, diagnosed diseases. And I had a baby dying of failure to thrive in and out of hospitals. And because we ditched the the dairy and the sugar primarily, that was the very first thing to go. And we started eating lots of plants, eventually for me, at least all plants um, and lots of raw plants and lots of greens in the blender. And that's how our, our 
little site started. Um, not only did my son grow up to be a state level athlete and a six foot three MVP, you know, hitting grand slams in the state playoffs and, you know, carried off the field by the team kind of kid who had started life as failure to thrive. But I believe my career is possible because of yours and your early work. Your, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to have you tell us how old you are and what's, what's life like for you now, because I think that's going to be really inspiring because I think at your age, most people are in the lazy boy and, you know, they keep on eating the ice cream. And, and at that point, there's not much left for you besides the lazy boy and watching TV and managing symptoms. Um, but I, I just want to tell you, thank you, because then I raised four children after the first one coming into this world and being weaned onto the standard American diet. Uh, reading Diet for a New America and reading The Food Revolution was an absolute mind-blowing adventure for me. And it's taken me places that now it's it's my career as well to teach people about eating more plants and how it's really key in living a high vibration life. So uh, if you feel like it, you can tell us how old you are. Tell us a little about what life is like for you now. Now you re- you lead the food revolution in its sixth year. There's a quarter of a million people listening right now as, as we're recording this. And I'm just so pleased that your son, Ocean, who I just think the world of is following in your footsteps and furthering this incredible mission you're an absolute inspiration how you champion animal rights and especially the health of human beings everywhere after coming from a from a background of that probably not being very probable. So tell us about your life now and then and then tell us what the most important factors are wh- about what to eat, what you've discovered in all of your years to be healthy and mentally sharp at any age and at your optimal weight till you're really old. Well, um first of all, um Thank you for sharing your journey, and that's very moving. Um, There you were with a failure to thrive firstborn, and you were yourself overweight, and you weren't thriving really. And something awoke in you. Somehow you were able to see your way to a whole different way of life, and now you teach it. And it, you, you raised four kids, I understand, all of whom were athletes and all of whom thrived. And, and these, are, these are actually predictable. When people eat healthy diets and live healthy lifestyles in general, um, the quality of energy that they experience in their bodies and minds is so different than when they numb out and shut down and eat toxic food and kind of go conform to the cultural norm. We normalized in this culture that is so bad for our body and our minds that the most people my age are in fact lazy boys or dead already at 70. And um, I became a marathon runner and a triathlete. And um, I now, the 60th day, I made it a goal to bench press my weight 30 times, and I did. Um, I've made it a goal for my 70th birthday, which is coming up in a couple of months, um, to uh, do 50 pull-ups. And it's, it, I'll do it. I'm in training for it now. I'll get there. I'm very close. And there are very few men my age in the country who can do five, and most can't do any. And it's to be strong and lean and fit and vibrant and full of energy at 70 at any age is, is a privilege. And then I think when we have a lot of energy, when we have health, how are we going to use it? To what end will we put it? Is there a way to serve others with it? And that, I think, is what really jails everything is when you, you under, understand what your contract with life is, where your service is, how you can best bring out the health or the joy or the beauty or the love in, in the people that you interact with, how you can best bring out the good and the best in them and in yourself, how you can live with respect for yourself and others. And in my case, when I think of the others, I think of the whole web of life. I think of living with respect for animals living with respect for the entire earth community and and not taking it for granted and not seeing it as a resource to exploit, uh, not seeing it as a, as a 
commodity to, to turn into revenue, but to see it as a living community of life. The, the earth community to me is a, is a blessing and, a, and something we as human beings need to take responsibility for our relationship to. And if we exploit, if we devour, if, if we harm, we will undermine the foundation for our own well-being. And in fact, if you look at the larger picture today, if you look at the ecological reality, we are doing that. And the result is species extinction and the destabilization of the climate and pollution in so many ways. Under such circumstances, I think to try to live a life that's healthy, that's balanced, that's with a clear mind and a heart that's open to the pain and to the joy is, is a challenge that I want to meet and I want to help others to meet too, if I possibly can. And that's my service. I'm going to take you back to, I'm going to get really basic because, because I'm sure that our audience wants to know, what do you eat each day? So we'll, we'll ask that question in a quick minute, but you're always quick to go to the global issues, which I think are so critically important. And I'm a big, I, I talk all the time about know what the genetically modified foods are and stop buying them, start buying organic, spend a little bit more money and we'll just bring the, pre- we'll bring the cost down because it's all supply and demand. And when there's more demand, there's more supply and the cost comes down. And so what do you think though? That's kind of just a, a pet um, theme of mine. What are, what do you think are the two or three issues that we as consumers can influence that are going on, that sort of the terrifying things going on in the food economy that you hope that we can make an impact on? What can we do? Well, when we eat plants instead of animals, basically, or mostly plants and few animals, then our health improves. We live longer lives, higher quality lives. I think there's a higher frequency then to our energy, our, to our vibration, to our quality of life. And also our ecological footprint and our, our, our carbon footprint are, are lessened. We are lighter on the earth. And to me, that is a big thing. That is an important thing. It's not just a question of personal virtue. To me, it's a question of social responsibility. And I want to live a life that's in alignment with uh, the highest good for all beings. As, as much as I can. Now, that is not what our culture is about. Our culture is about selfishness and greed and every man for himself and dog eat dog. But the truth is, even dogs don't eat dogs. We, are, we have in us a capacity to compete. We have in us a capacity to cooperate. And when those two capacities are expressed in a balanced way, we thrive. But something's happened, I think, in our society that rewards the competitive part of us, doesn't reward, doesn't acknowledge, doesn't honor the capacities that we have to cooperate and to nurture and to befriend each other. And the result is we're very lonely people. We're isolated people. We're, we're alienated people. And we're, we're, we're trying to conquer and instead of trying to live. And it costs us dearly. Now, food, I'll come back to that. What do I eat? I don't eat genetically engineered foods ever. I eat as much organic as I can. Um, I'm vegan-esque. I used to be, I think for 30-something years, I was a total vegan exclusively and hardcore at it. Um, And in the last few years, I feel better eating some wild fish, in particular salmon. Um, But with that exception, I'm vegan. And I eat a lot of, but you can be vegan and, and eat an unhealthy diet. Um, and I did at one point, but I've grown out of that. And I, I eat a lot of plants. I eat a lot of vegetables. I eat a lot of fresh fruits. Um, I eat some whole grains, but they are low glycemic ones, quinoa and buckwheat primarily. Um, I eat some bread, but it's only made, the only breads I eat are made from organic sprouted grains. Um, I don't eat flour. I don't eat sugar, um, you know, added sugar. There, there are sugars naturally inherent in, in all foods, really, but particularly in many fruits. I do enjoy fresh fruits. 
Um, I eat a lot of produce. When I check out at the uh, at the store, my basket is full of vegetables and fruits, um, and not very many packages. So, and people always comment on it at the checkout stand. And they can't believe that, of course, I'm buying for my family. I, I like to shop like once a week because I don't like, you know, driving and going to the store too much. So I get a lot and um, it sometimes baffles the, the checkout people because there's, and particularly greens, I buy tons and tons of kale and collards and arugula and uh, broccoli and mustard greens and all kinds of dark green leafy vegetables because I love them and I eat them every day. Um, I have smoothies most mornings where I blend uh, kale leaves or collard leaves and maybe an apple and maybe carrot and a cucumber, maybe, um, uh, and I also grind in a, a little coffee grinder that I have set aside for this purpose, flax seeds and chia seeds. And I grind them up and put them in the smoothie along with the um, fresh veggies and sometimes an apple and, um, and water and blend it up. And, and I have that first thing in the morning or not first thing, but that's the first thing that I, that I eat. And um, then throughout the day, I eat salads and steamed veggies and uh, I lo- I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian that eats vegetables. <laughs> I really am a vegetable-tarian. Um, I love them. And I love how the colors and the flavors. And I have to say, when I was an ice cream-itarian, um, <laughs> and I think I was, really. Um, well, you had a lot of flavors, flavors to choose from. The amount of sugar, the amount of fat were so intense that I couldn't taste anything else. Everything else was bland for me. And when I stopped eating high salt foods, high fat foods, high sugar foods, ice cream in particular, when I stopped eating those kinds of foods, I started to develop my taste buds for the first time. And I started to be able to taste um, real food. So... Then I noticed that a, a simple baked potato uh, tasted better to me than a baked potato used to taste when it was smothered with sour cream and, and other kinds of gravies and things because I could taste now. And I began to be able to actually taste life, to be able to sense my own feelings and to be aware of my thoughts and to be aware of other people's feelings and thoughts in ways that I hadn't before when I was basically numbed out by food that was so overpowering and overwhelming to my senses that it, it basically hijacked my taste buds and hijacked my brain in some sense. I began to think differently when I changed the way I ate and I began to relate differently to people in a much more empathic way, in a much more understanding way. Um, and, I, and that was one of the great, great rewards and joys, as well as physical health, uh, making those shifts. You know, the last couple of years, my um, my passion has moved from teaching people green smoothies, a 450-city lecture tour on that for years. This, was, this all started when there were 50 searches a month worldwide on Google for the ter- term green smoothie and... Um, I'm really pleased now that it's the a household term, but lately my research, yeah. yeah, the last couple of years, my research has kind of shifted into how the diet industry has wanted us to think in terms of calories and they've wanted us to think in terms of slicing and dicing proteins, fats, and carbs and, and obsessing about this little shell game of how many grams of proteins, fats, and carbs that we eat. And you know what I discovered the very same thing you're talking about, John, is that, and, and so many of um, the folks who came to my lecture tour who write us emails say, well, how is it going to taste? Well, I don't like the taste of that. And I tell the same story that 
you know, and the way I explain it is that where I'm really attracted these days is to energies and how Einstein and Tesla talked about how everything in life is vibration, everything is energetic and, and how, you know, dead cows or chickens have a, a vibration of two megahertz. And, and the thing is we, we resonate at like 62 to 68 hertz. And so when we eat a two hertz energetic food like chicken or beef, we are energetically harmed by that and our vibrations brought lower. And that's really, I really want to connect that to what you said about when your food changed, it's not that, you know, you just felt better. It's also that you literally energetically vibrate higher. And so when you drink a green juice, which is 75 Hertz, obviously that's going to raise you that, that, that law of physics that, you know, uh, a substance of a higher frequency can cause a substance of a lower frequency to increase just by us drinking it, just by us literally being in its presence. If you are in my energy field and you're a high vibration person, I'm going to leave better for it. I'm going to literally leave higher vibration. And one of the things that I noticed that I see you confirming is that as I built my cells out of higher vibration materials, I started to attract higher vibration people. I started to attract higher vibration opportunities and higher vibration foods were interesting to me. They tasted delicious to me. I would, instead of salivating over, sorry to the Baskin Robbins family, but but Ben and Jerry's, which was a big feature of my 20s, I salivate thinking about an avocado or a red pepper. Can you relate to that? Oh, totally, totally. And, and I... When I first started uh, changing my diet, um, the idea of salivating over a red pepper or an avocado would have been very fun to me because I only had to salivate over mint chocolate chip or, <laughs> you know, these very, very sweet, very, very rich um, desserts. And it took a while. There was a transition um, for me anyway. And but what, but what I did find is exactly what you said, that I began to um, draw to me different kinds of opportunities and different kinds of people. And I began to see differently. I began to see the good in people, whereas before I was cynical and resigned and had a pretty pessimistic outlook, frankly, and I was guarded and now I started to be less defended and more friendly towards life, see the opportunities more, the dangers less, still aware of them, but not fixated on them, and so less fearful. And I, I began to appreciate um, subtler experiences. And now, if I were to drink a Coca-Cola, I wouldn't like it at all. It would burn. It would, it would, and I, and I did have this experience. I haven't drank in a Coke in many, many decades, but it, one was served to me. I didn't realize it was what, what it was. It was in a cup and, a, and at, at a gathering. And I had a sip of it, not knowing actually what it was. And I put it down. I thought, well, this is terrible. This tastes like, I didn't like it at all. And then somebody said, well, it's just a Coke. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> I don't like it. And and it's fascinating to, have, to go through that shift in what you like and what you attract and how you respond to life. Because then when you become more creative, you become more of a, a force of nature. You're more energized. You're more determined. You're more committed. You're more capable of your commitments, of following through and completing. Uh, you're more capable of of being the human being that you want to be and that you're here to be. And that's the real secret of all this. Yes, you lower your rates of heart disease and cancer. You really do. Yes, you do dramatically lower your risk of Alzheimer's and dementia as you age. Absolutely. Um, yes, your joints will feel better. You, you won't develop arthritis. Um, all kinds of things that are physical are better. But it's not just physical. It is also emotional and psychic and spiritual. And I think that we are whole human beings and we occupy life in many different ways and we live on many different levels and dimensions. And our hearts on one level are these pumps in our chest that 
that, that um, distribute blood throughout our body. But on another level, our hearts are, are a way of loving and being loved and recognizing the beauty in, in life and in each other and in ourselves. And so when we eat a heart-healthy diet, we have far lower rates of cardiovascular disease. Um, our arteries are much more open. They, and blood flows better to every organ and system in our body with all the advantages that brings. But also our hearts are more open. There is a sense that we have more trust and less fear in our lives. And I, I think that's, a, that's an accomplishment worth mentioning. You know, I was anticipating that this whole interview would really be about food. And I've been just delighted that, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the life lessons you've learned beyond just food? You've made a career out of teaching people about food and the impact of their food choices on the whole globe and on each other. And I've, I wanted to ask you what, what you've learned to be emotionally and mentally healthy as well as well as physically. And I really feel like you went there without me having to ask you. And so I have a little bit more specific question that I think that my audience who are detoxing with us, we have a few thousand folks detoxing with us and they're being given this, this interview as a gift because I want them to hear from one of my heroes who influenced my life and you play such a role in why I have four beautifully healthy children. I just watched my youngest son. I told you about the oldest son, but I just watched the youngest son last night pitch a shutout for the same high school. And he's six foot four. And um, I really think all the time about where we were going had we had we stayed on our standard American diet path. And, you know, I had the little phase of being a, a, a Doritos and Diet Coke vegetarian. And you, <laughs> sounds like you and I have been through a lot of different phases. But you've shared a lot with us, I think, about other life lessons beyond just food or the impact that eating at a higher vibration place brings you to states of spiritual and intellectual abilities and relationship connection that aren't really possible when we're just fighting symptoms and and just fighting with our low vibrations every day. But let me ask you this, because I am pretty fascinated by the relationship you had with your father and how hard that must have been for both you and him to have that divide between you, right? As you were coming of age and you were, you were the the man, you were going to be, you know, the second generation taking over this amazing billion dollar legacy that he gave so much of his life to. How did you achieve that? How did you achieve that? Um, I think those are the greatest stories of forgiveness and redemption. I mean, I was an English major in college, so I love them. How did you achieve that healing with your father and that coming back together? How did that happen? What would you tell us about what we can achieve in our life that way? Well, it wasn't easy. Um, after I made the decision to, to walk away from the business, he was angry and he had ways of expressing his anger that were dysfunctional. And we ended up having a lot of distance between us um, for a number of years. When I wrote Diet for a New America, I sent him a copy, an autographed copy, but he didn't read it. But Around that same time, his own health was deteriorating. Um, I mentioned he had diabetes. It was pretty severe. Um, the, the prognosis was potentially blindness um, and the, potentially the, an amputation of a foot or even a leg. The circulation to his eyes and his extremities was very impaired. And his, he was over, very badly overweight and his heart problems were serious. One day he went to his... Um, um, cardiologist who was at the time the highest priced cardiologist in, in the country possibly. And he, he, um, the, the guy leveled with him and said, Mr. Robbins, you're a very sick man. And the best we can do is try to juggle your medications, try to control some of the side effects that are bothering you and try to make your few remaining years a little more comfortable unless you're willing to make really major changes in, in the way you live and in what you eat. And my father looked at him and said, well, what kind of changes are you talking about? And he said, well, there's this book you should read. 
No. And he handed him a copy of Diet for a New America, my book. No. And the, the, the astounding thing is this physician did not know that the John Robbins who'd written the book was related to the Irv Robbins, to my dad, who, who was his patient. He didn't know the, the because I didn't, I, I barely mentioned it in Diet for a New America in the introduction just once, the, my, you know, who my dad was. And he hadn't seen that. But the book had been very well reviewed in the American Journal of Cardiology, and he'd, he'd read it. He loved it. He was a, a rare cardiologist back in those days who saw the connection with diet and health. And he gave the book to my father. And my poor dad, you know, this was a collision of karmic drama. You know, I wish I could have been a, a fly on the wall and seen his face. I mean, it, it must have been really something because – from his point of view, this is the high priest of Western medicine telling him he should read a book written by his maverick son who rejected his life work. I mean, that's, that is difficult. And to his credit, I think it's to his credit, he began to read the book slowly. He read the copy the doctor gave him, I'm sure, the one that had been blessed by the high priest of Western medicine. But he, he did read it and he did make some changes and he got some results and then he made more changes and he got more results and then he made more changes and he got more results. So then he got off his blood pressure medication that he'd been told he'd have to take for the rest of his life. His diabetes went into remission. He didn't need insulin shots anymore. He didn't even need diabetic pills anymore. Uh, he lost a lot of weight that he needed to lose. His, his blood markers, his biomarkers came into the normal range where they had been way bad before. His golf game improved about eight strokes. Everything was humming. And at that point, this, this took place over a course of about two years that he was making these changes and getting these results. And then he called me. I didn't know this, any of this was happening. And he called me on the phone and he said, Johnny, something's happened. And I'm thought at first, oh my God, is, has there been a death? Because my dad didn't call me very much in those days. And he said, you won't believe this. It's, it's unbelievable. It, it's just incredible. It's, it, it, it's just unbelievable. And I said, what, dad? He said, well, it, it turns out it, you were right. And about what I said. And he said, then he told me the story of his meeting with the cardiologist and all these changes he'd made and all the results he'd gotten. And then from then on, over the next 20 years of his life, because he lived 20 more healthy years, um, we had a lot of good, good connections. And he at one point said, thank God you had the courage to follow your own star, even when I put every obstacle I could in your way. And to me, I... I admire my father's business achievements. They're prodigious. But honestly, I admire him even more for his ability to make the shifts he did and, and to make the changes he did. I mean, he was Mr. Ice Cream. And he stopped eating ice cream. And he, came, he became what he called, he told me, I'm not a card-carrying vegetarian. But he didn't eat meat in home. He had no meat in the home. He ate a really healthy diet. Um, and he lived 20 more healthy years and he, he came to respect and appreciate what I had done with my life in a, in a very substantial way. And I, I give him credit for that. I, I mean, I'm for, for a man as invested as he was, as identified as he was with ice cream and business success to make these kinds of changes and then to have respect for the son who did reject your life work and who wrote books exposing the downside, the dark side of the industry that you made your career in and, and your identity in. I think I admire him more for that because that's a power of the heart, the ability to forgive that he, that he manifested towards me is something I just am so grateful for and I'm so humble in the face of and um, feel so blessed by. And that I was able in the long run, I think to give him something more important than I would have if I'd followed in his footsteps and done the obvious thing and, 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 and met his expectations. But as it turned out, I was able to help him have 20 more healthy years and 
a, a reconciliation with me. And I think our relationship was more beautiful and real than it would have been if I had done what he wanted. It was harder for a long time. But in the end, I think it was much more beautiful, much more loving, much more real. And I'm grateful for it. Oh, what a beautiful tribute to him. A few things strike me about that. And then I have one more question for you. One is, it, I I have to try not to laugh, but we're never a prophet in our own land, right? I mean, like, my children are raised with all this crazy, earthy, crunchy stuff and lots of jokes made about it. And, you know, they've gone off on their own and they, they take their zigzaggy path. And each one of them has had people say, come up to them and say, you know, your mother's work has impacted my life so much. And I just want to hug you because you're her child. And those things make my children turn and look at my work differently. And I'm patient. I can wait. And your story makes me patient for the the healing that takes place when, when we are so, we are so far apart. Uh, life is long and we get lots of chances. And what a beautiful story about your dad. So you're never a prophet in your own land. You have to have your cardiologist hand you your son's book before you actually read it and <laughs> <laughs> and another thing that strikes me about your story is that it doesn't matter how rich you are. You can't buy your health. Your your father could buy the the most expensive cardiologist there is. And, and what does he want you to do? He wants you to eat foods that don't have a mother. That's awesome. And finally, I want to point out just because it strikes me, it's been many, many years since I read your books and I still refer back to them. I quote them in blog posts, but I want to say that Diet for a New America and the Food Revolution the reason they got to me, whereas many other wellness books didn't, is that you are so meticulous, John, in documenting back then hundreds and hundreds of references about what is in the literature, the scientific literature, and what is actually known about the power of eating more plants. And that's that's really what... Um, what was so compelling to me because I was one of those snobs who said, you have to prove it to me. I want to see the science. And now I know far more about, you know, how things actually get published in a, in a medical journal and how much of science is really sort of industry driven. But you were the first one um, to take the time to nail it all down and document it. And I believe that is why a cardiologist was handing your book out to his patients. And so so kudos on that. I want to tell you, just want to ask you one more question before we let you go. You have this huge body of work. You put on the Food Revolution Summit every year for six years. This is my first year telling my audience about it. And I'm so enjoying hearing from a lot of my heroes. You really are able to, because you are so well known in the field of wellness, you're able to choose the 20, 24 most interesting, uh, most credentialed, um, most cutting edge in terms of the information they're delivering people who are changing the world in the food revolution. And, but so with all that going on, this should be a good answer here. What's the thing you are most excited about coming up in your career or what's next for John Robbins? Um, we're right in the middle of the summit right now. And I must say, I'm quite occupied by it and with it. Um, I, I think right when it's done, I'm looking forward to a few days off. I haven't had a day off in about a, two months. But, um, and I am, I am looking forward to getting a little more balance in my life because I've been working pretty hard. But it's work I love. And I don't know what the next iteration will be. We'll continue to do summits. That, um, we're creating a course, Plant Powered and Thriving, uh, to show people, take people on the how to do it. Um, and that's something that, you know, I've written books that have been bestsellers and I've, I've influenced a lot of people's lives and, and that's thrilling, frankly, and humbling. Um, but I haven't been able to, um, create a course before we've, we've done this course before, but it's, we're still perfecting it. We're still refining it. I don't, it isn't really there yet by there. I mean, where I want it to be, where it really takes people uh, and who, who are new to this way of eating and helps them become masters in six weeks. Maybe that's asking too much, but I think we can do it. And that's exciting to me. I'm also um, excited by what I see as in young people, um, a sense that we have to take care of the environment. We have to. It's not an option because if we don't, if we don't learn how to do it, if we don't shift our economy, if we don't shift our, our way of life so that we do 
take care of the of the environment. The, the alternative is disaster. The alternative is catastrophe. That urgency, it's like maybe we're hitting bottom. You know, in AA, they talk about hitting bottom when an alcoholic just realizes that they're killing themselves and that if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to be dead uh, and somehow reaches out for help and is willing to, to surrender to a higher power, however they think of that or conceive of that or understand that, something greater than themselves can then take place in their heart and their lives and, and start to guide them. Um, and they can stop drinking or stop their addiction to drugs or whatever it is that's, that's destroying their life. So in our case, it's, I think my, my, what excites me is the possibility that we're hitting bottom in terms of the destructive activities that have gone rewarded financially in our society and, and, and which to which we, we've given so much energy. Um, I'd love to see us become a non-polluting society. I'd love to see us use energy that's renewable. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see us use energy to, to, to fuel our bodies that's renewable, that doesn't take such a huge chunk out of, out of the, the, the life support systems of the planet. And the fact that the food choices that are healthiest for us personally, to give us the strongest immune system and therefore the, the greatest ability to ward off infectious disease, to give us the lowest rates of cancer, the lowest rates of heart disease, the lowest rates of dementia, that allow us to live the most vibrant and vital and powerful lives that we can, are also these plant-based food choices, plant-strong food choices, are also the kindest to the other animals. To me, that's a win-win-win-win. And that's good for us. And, and to me, what's exciting is all the people who are seeing this, understanding it and acting on it. And I get to be part of that. And that's, that's really exciting for me too. Well, congratulations on all that. I hope you never stop using your influence for good. You've been out there pioneering and talking about these issues like genetically modified organisms and helping people eat more plants long before there were really any, really before anybody else was out in in the mainstream. Now there are a lot of us, but you led the way. And so I'm really excited that I hear I get to come in and hang out with you for a day at a, at a mastermind of people who are championing the whole foods causes. And I'm really excited about that. Thank you. And thank you so much, John Robbins and your son, Ocean Robbins, who is also leading the way and a tremendous leader and in, in a force for good. Thank you so much for being with us on this call today. Well, thank you, Robin. And thank you for all the work you're doing and all the lives you're touching. Your students uh, are, are fortunate indeed. So I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. You're basically listening to me talking to a legend and one of my heroes. I hope that if you aren't yet listening to my podcast, it's on iTunes. It's called Your High Vibration Life. And on it, I do a lot of really spectacular interviews with people who are changing the world and people who can teach us something about living at higher vibrations. So I hope to see you over there. Mm -hmm.